to overcome, succeed in dealing with a problem or difficulty, defeat of an opponent to prevail, overpower or overwhelm of an emotion, adversity, a difficult or unpleasant situation, used in a sentence, resilience in the face of adversity. I want to break free. Hey, good afternoon. This is Amanda Marino and Blake Cohen with Overcoming Adversity Podcast. We're so excited today to have you here with us. You know, we always have these really great people on our podcast that we get inspired by. And um, yeah. Hey, Blake. Hi. Hello, hello. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. This is episode number 16, lucky number 16 of the Overcoming Adversity Podcast. And we're over a thousand listens, right? We are over a thousand. We're at like a 1100 listens right now. So we're, we're wow. slowly getting some momentum. And I was told by a guy, I was on a guy's podcast yesterday who's done over 800 podcasts. And he was saying for us to be on episode 16 and have over a thousand listens is actually really good. So I'm proud of us. Yay. Go us. So, um, yeah. So Blake, um, Blake is a, an awesome author of a best-selling book called I Love You More. Oh, thank you. Where can they find that, Blake? On Amazon, of course. Just type in I Love You More, Blake Cohen, and you'll find that book on there. And awesome. Amanda is a kick-ass recovery coach, life coach, sober coach, companion, escort, all that good stuff. And where can they find that, Amanda? At amandaempower.com or at amandaempowers on Instagram. Thanks, Blake, for the shout-out. Appreciate it. I like that we don't have to promote ourselves, that we can just promote each other. <laughs> it makes it so much easier. Um, so we have a pretty cool guest today, a guest that both you and I know, uh, we've known him for now for probably a a couple years, maybe even a little bit longer, who is a, an ex NFL player who's had tons of struggle. I mean, talk about adversity, just making it to the NFL is, is overcoming some serious adversity right there, but he's overcome a lot more than that. And, um, I guess without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Randy Grimes. Well, thanks for the uh, add-in there. Hey, and let me say uh, congratulations to both of y'all, Blake, on your book. Thank you. And uh, best-selling status and all that. And, of course, I know what the great work Amanda is doing and has done for years and such an inspiration with uh, her Empowering Women um, format. It's just uh, very cool, very cool what both of you guys are doing. And thanks, thanks for what you do. I, I think Thank we're you. both. I think we're all three of us are really just trying to make a difference in this field and a difference in the in the world and make whatever little impact that we can make uh, leave it a better place than it was before we got here, which is nice. I think all three of us have a very similar mission, and that's what draws me to both of you. That's why I love you both because of your hearts. And Randy, that's why we you know the main reason we wanted to have you on here because you dedicated your life, you know, to giving back to others and you know your purpose. Well, just so many years of misery and pain and the huge wake of destruction that I left, I just wanted to make it mean something, you know, instead of just getting sober and going to meetings. uh, You know, I knew there was a lot of other guys out there just like me and that were suffering in silence, wouldn't raise their hand for whatever reason, whether it's stigma or shame or whatever. And I just, uh, you know, I just one day uh, I wanted to make it mean something. And uh, that's what all this is is about. And it's it's almost like uh, it's, it almost feels like that was the reason God allowed me to play football all those years to prepare me for what I do now. Yeah, it's one of those things where looking back, you can kind of connect the dots of every everything sort of made sense, and it, it leads you to where you are today. Right. So take and us back. All, all these cool people in my life too, like you two. Yeah. No, you definitely have the opportunity to meet Especially a lot of Especially me. Especially me, not Blake. <laughs> I was thinking that was really nice of you to say about me because I know you don't, you don't really feel that way. So. No, I was, I was, yeah, that was more directed towards Amanda. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> um, so take us back. So you're actually in Houston right now. You, you do live uh, down here in South Florida, but you're, you're in Houston right now, and that's where you're from, right? No, I'm from up near Dallas, Tyler, Texas, the rose capital of the world. That's where uh, Earl Cam 
Campbell is from, and and he was the he was the Tyler Rose, and I was the uh, Tyler Rose Thorn. <laughs> okay. I went off to uh, I played I played college ball here at Baylor and Waco, and uh, of course I met my wife the first day of school our freshman year. Married her, went out that night, married her after our junior year, and um, she is from Houston. So her parents all live down here. Her family is down here. My children live here. My grandchildren live here. And this is just, uh, you know, Houston is, uh, Houston's a big place. A lot it's a of second people. home base for you. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of a, a home base. But I've got a brother, a brother and a sister that live in Austin, and a mom that lives up in Carrollton. So I've got Texas roots. So let me ask you this, because I, I was never a big sports guy, as you could tell by looking at me. I don't really no, look I like a sport about you. Yeah, no, I know. But you know, I was always a big fan of drama on TV, and I was always a big fan of like Friday Night Lights, which I believe takes place in Texas. So was the town that you were from? Was it a, a, a football town? Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, that's, that's part of my story is that, uh, you know, growing up, it was Friday night lights, football, pickup trucks, pasture parties, girls, you know, that was, uh, that was life in East Texas. Yeah. Everything's centered around football. So you were part of the football team, obviously. So you're, you're sort of the star of the town, one of the stars of the town. Well, I don't know about that, but, uh, well, you're getting a lot of attention in high school. That's for sure. Right. At the time, at the time, Tyler was not as big a town as it is now. You know, since since me and Earl Campbell came out, there's been several guys that have come out and played, had good college careers and made it to the pros and been pretty successful. But, uh, no, at the time, Tyler was a small town, a suburb of Dallas. And, uh, you know, it was uh, it was a great place to, to grow up, that's for sure. Okay. So- and it was a dry county, too. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Which makes it so much more fun to go out drinking. <laughs> Which, yeah, you just had to, you had to drive across the county line to, to, to buy beer and bring it back, yeah. or mm-hmm. buy anything and bring it back into the county. Right. But wow. that was part of the mission. That was part of, uh, that was part of uh, growing up, was making those beer runs across the county line. Yeah, it gave it more fun, made it more fun, more adventurous. <laughs> right. So you're playing football in and, high school. You no, know, I was the I was I was the first one in my group to turn 18. Uh, I started school a year later, so I was a year about a year older than everybody in my class. And since I was the first one to turn 18, which was the legal drinking age, uh, I was the first one voted to. Everybody handed me all their cash one day at lunch on a Friday and told me to drive over to Coffee City. That was the uh, that was the county line in the first liquor store you could make it to. And this was my first time ever making that run. And so I walk in and to the liquor store and there were these TV cameras in there. And what had happened was they had just gotten robbed. And back then they had those big, big cameras, you know, that, you know, it takes like two people to carry them around on their shoulders and stuff. Right. One guy holding the camera, one guy holding the battery pack. And, uh, they had two cameras and they were interviewing the lady at the counter. And then there was another camera just getting some B roll of everything. And so I made the five o'clock news walking in the door on my very first trip to, uh, to coffee city to buy beer. And, uh, I should have known then I was not ever, I was not going to be a successful alcoholic. (laughs) So when you get to college, you're playing football in college. And when do you start noticing some, some addictive tendencies? Well, you know, I, there, there, and really, I, I was a kid that was raised around parents who I never saw drink, uh, a brother and sister that I never saw drink. I mean, there was no tendency. I had no history of it in my family uh, anywhere. So, I mean, there was no indication at all about what was going to happen. And then even at Baylor, I mean, other than, you know, going out with my buddies to restaurants or bars or, you know, the occasional dorm crap that we used to do you know there was uh i never got in trouble because of drinking my life was never unmanageable because of drinking or drugs and uh 
you know, there was really no indication. I, I, I was engaged to a preacher's daughter, so I was being watched very closely and <laughs> and really just uh, I really didn't think it really never came up and it never was an issue so oh. there even at Bay, you know even when I graduated at uh, at 22 you know it was it was there was no indication of what lied ahead for me so, so what happened what well before what we the get shift? there actually I kind of want to ask you so about the the process of making it to the nfl because i mean i that's got to be one of the most exciting highlights of your life right well yeah and one uh, probably the most surprising is something that you can't spend too much time thinking about i mean when me and my wife got engaged she was going to be a teacher i was going to be a coach we were going to live that all-american dream life where you know she was going to teach at the same high school that i coached at you know, that's, that's kind of how we went into that, to that marriage after our junior year, because, yeah, I mean, I had seen scouts come around. I'd seen guys in, in classes above me get drafted, but you know, you just, you can't put all your eggs in that one basket and we were just prepared for, for anything. And, um, you know, I, I had a great senior year at Baylor. Uh, scouts were coming around. I was hearing talk about, where I ranked in the draft and, and who needed centers and where I might go, who was looking at me. I got invited to the combines, which is uh, uh, pretty prestigious to be invited to those things because there's only 200 athletes from around the country that are invited to those things. And, hmm. and I went and I ran for them. I did all the te tests and skills tests. I did all the aptitude testing. I did all the meetings. You know, it's a three-day event. One was in Seattle. One was in uh, Indianapolis. And the other one was in Dallas. And, um, you know, I, 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 had good, I had good combines. So I, my – my draft position just kept going up. And, you know, back then, that, this was before uh, televised drafts and the big hoopla that surrounded them now. Now they're like three-day events, you know, oh, yeah. that NFL just yeah. makes a gazillion dollars off of. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, this was back before then. And, uh, you know, we were just told to sit by the phone on draft day. And so wow. you, sit, you sit there, sit there, and you, you never know. Uh, who's going to call or when they're going to call, but it just so happened that the Bucks called me uh, as their second round pick. And, you know, I'll never forget that. It was just right. It was right after lunch. It was about one fifteen in the afternoon. And, uh, wow. you know, we were, we were so excited because, you know, like I, I tell people all the time, I was a kid from East Texas and first time I ever saw the ocean was when I went to Galveston to visit Lydia and she lived in Houston. So we were, we were going to a seaside community that had just been to the playoffs the year before, 1982. And so as far as I was concerned, we were going to a playoff team that, um, that was right on the ocean in, in beautiful wow. Tampa Bay. Exciting so, and, times, you know? And, and I will say, because we actually do have international listeners, which is pretty cool for us. Uh, so what he's talking about is the NFL team, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers that he was drafted to, which is, I mean, again, it must've felt like you hit the lottery, you know, at, at this time. You know, it was, it was exciting. And I had yeah, no that's idea. amazing. I had no idea what to expect as far as money. I was just amazed that somebody was going to pay me to play a game that I would have gladly played for free, you know? Right. That yeah. It was your life. Kept playing right. And uh, I was going to be able to make a living at doing that. And that just, that blew my mind. What was the emotion like when you got that call? Were you jumping up and down screaming afterwards? Was your family there with you? I mean, what was that? What was that like? Well, no, it was just me and Lydia. Of course, everybody was standing by their telephones waiting for us to call. And, um, you know, by the, by the time the Bucks call you and the time it's announced on ESPN, you know, it's probably about 15 or 20 minutes. So, you know, we had time to call everybody and everybody was excited. You know, there was a time there where I thought I was going to go to the Cowboys and that would have been really cool. Oh, yeah. And, of course, the family would have really loved that, but that didn't <laughs> work out. And uh, I was happy where I was going. I was excited about it. And uh, I, I guess the emotions were just uh, 
you know, it's like, I, I just, actually, I was just glad it was all over. I mean, in all the testing and all the phone calls and all the, all the working out that I had to do in Waco, every time a scout would come in town, I would have to go over there and run a 40. I would have to do all these drills. And it just got so monotonous that uh, even though I was thankful for the opportunity, I was just glad it was all over, that it worked out well. I was the second center drafted the, that year. And, um, you know, what I was a going dream. to a great team. Huh? What, a dream come, what a dream come true. Oh, my gosh. It's, unbelievable can i ask you so was a was a situation like that where you're that's kind of all eyes on you and there's so much going on was it ego deflating or you know humbly or was it ego inflating well i guess it's ego inflating until you get out there and then when you get out there and you get around guys that have been there year after year playing at a high level then it's pretty ego deflating because, you know, these guys are so much further uh, along than you are. They're, they're so much better at the game. They're so much bigger, stronger, faster, you know, wow. savvy. And, uh, you know, it takes a while to catch up. Mm. Man, I, I can't even imagine. That's good. That's, that's crazy. Well, I mean, you go from a man among boys at your, at your college campus to being a boy among men uh, you know at the pro level and, and uh it's uh, definitely some adjusting that, that you better do pretty quick because you won't last long if you don't they will eat you alive and spit you out right so then i guess you know back to amanda's question so then when when do you start developing some of your addiction issues well you know and the way i describe it is you know, I was always real good at keeping my mouth shut and listening. You know, my whole life, I've always done that. Uh, I think I'm a good listener. And I, I, when I got to that locker room out in Tampa Bay, I wanted to listen to how the older guys did it, how the Leroy Selmans and Hugh Greens and James Wilders and Dave Logans and Doug Williams, all the great players that year after year played the game at such a high level and, and not only are they successful and make pro bowls and, and all pro, but they're also able to feed their families. And, you know, one of the things that I learned to do by just listening was do whatever I had to do to stay out on the field. Because, you know, I, I know that if I'm not out on the field in my position, somebody else will be. And, mm -hmm. you know, you also don't want to get that reputation as being the guy who's always on the injury report, that guy who's always in line to see the doctor, uh, always uh, having the trainers work on you back in the training room, always missing practice. You don't want to get that reputation because once you get it, you never get away from it. Okay. And uh, it follows you around in what's sure to be a very short career in the NFL. So. You know, what, what, did, uh, what did doing whatever I had to do to stay out on the field look like? It, it looked like taking handfuls of pain pills every day to stay out there and working through, practicing through the injuries, and then handfuls of uh, sleeping pills at night to, um, to get to sleep, to get through the throbbing, uh, all the throbbing and, and, and everything that's going on when you're just laying still at night. You know, it's – you had to do all that just to function, Randy? Like, so that was just, like every day? Uh, just to function, just to stay out there. Just, uh, you know, I would treat myself. When I say treat, you know, I would ice myself. I would do my own whirlpools. I would tape myself because I didn't want anybody else to know how banged up I was. And, uh, you know, I would always come in on my free time and take care of my injuries myself. I would never try to be on any reports, on any list. And um, I, I would not ask for any help from the trainers at all because I just didn't want to – I didn't want to be acknowledged as having injuries. And, uh, you know, as long as I took a bunch of pain medication and was out on that, that field and was sucking it up and, and, and doing everything that I had to do, then that was fine with me because, you know, I thought that was the way you do things, you know. Mm -hmm. I was always taught – and. A lot of us guys are by our parents, by our dads, you know, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and get back in there 
you know, big boys don't cry, shake it off, get back in there, get back in the game. And, you know, that's what I was doing. I was uh, pretty much suffering in silence and doing my job because, you know, I wanted to be the best that ever played the position and I wanted to feed my family and I wanted to play the game forever. And, you know, I, uh, th those are just ways that I justified it. And, you know, also I was getting it from team trainers, so it must be okay. Right. And, and right. I'm, get, I'm getting it from team doctors, so it must be okay. I'm getting it from, from my teammates. So it must just be the culture of the NFL. You know, I'm getting it. I've got fans right outside the door who will get and do anything that I ask them to. So, it must be okay, right? We, I mean, we've, we had an open drug safe that really? I could go get whatever I want to do out of there. There was and just so pain meds nobody or ever, whatever you wanted was in there. questioned me, so it must be okay, right? See, that's how I justified it. And I, I didn't look at it like a growing addiction. I looked at it like a necessary evil to be the best that I could be. So, yeah. I, and I kind of have a, a statement and then a question. So first, you know, you talking about me, me knowing you for so long and you talking about being a, a good listener. I just want to say that's interesting. Um, the question is, uh, just busting your balls there. Um, the question is, so is, are there other teammates doing the same thing? And at, at what point are you starting to, to think about the future of how are you going to stop taking all these pay meds? Or was that, that thought never crossed your mind? Never, never crossed my mind. And there, there were several guys that were doing the same thing. I, I didn't know the extent of how bad it was for those guys. You know, I, I, part of my story is a guy that I played next to, Tom McHale, for many years. Who uh, he was doing the exact same thing I was doing, and one morning he just didn't wake up, and he uh, he died in his sleep as a result of opiates and benzos. But so, you know, the extent of the problem, you know, we. Whenever we would play a game, there would be a trainer standing at the door as we, you know, when the game was over and everybody got dressed and showered, there'd be a, a guy standing at the door and they would hand you those little dental uh, envelopes, those little white dental envelopes that are, you know, are small and they would have, they would have a couple of Vicodin in there and they'd hand you two Vicodin and two beers as you left wow. the building. Who does that? Wow. I mean, what, what business have somebody stand at the door and, and, and hand you two Vicodin and two beers as you're walking out to go get in your car and drive home. That's so crazy. That was the culture. That was the culture back then. And even on flights back home from away games, you know, the, the trainers would come down the aisle of the plane. They would hand out uh, all the halcyon, you know, that you needed. They would hand out if you had any any pain issues they would hand out the vicodin they would the uh stewardesses would come right behind them with the cart full of beer i mean that was just part of the culture and right or wrong you know the, i mean that's the way it was for many years a lot of the movies were talking about a lot of drug use uh not so much street drugs as there was you know uh, prescription drugs that was the culture back then because you know, I, Randy Grimes wasn't the first one to want to do whatever it took to stay out on the field, you know, and, and if that meant taking handfuls of, of opiates every day, then he wasn't the, I wasn't the only guy doing that, you know? Right. Right. Hmm. So you're but you pretty... know what? In, in, that, in that 10 years that I was there, and I would probably say eight of them is when all this was going on, you know, probably all 10 of them, some of it, but eight of them where it was pretty religious, you know, me taking half daily, daily medication and, and nightly sleeping pills. But you know, in all that time, nobody ever came up and said, Randy, why, why are you slurring your words? Or Randy, why are you nodding off in meetings? Or, or, or Randy, why are you late for practice? practice every day or why are you asking all your other teammates for their pills or why why are you the last to leave the building every day and drugs are missing out of the drug safe you know nobody ever asked me those questions because i was always playing good right so it didn't really matter and you know you see a lot of that when it's when it comes to entertainment or it comes to 
uh, the entertainment industry or the athletes, you know, you kind of look the other way when there's stuff like that going on uh, because you're, you're bringing in a lot more money than that. And there's really nothing for them to worry about. Well, yeah, there's water, water they going to address, you know, if I'm not playing back then I'm doing what they expect. And, and as long as I'm doing it, they don't care how I'm doing it. As long as I'm not hurting anybody else or hurting an organization. Well, when did that start to take a turn? Did that ever take a turn for you or was it always okay for you while you were there? Like, were you functional the whole time? Well, I, I was functional for a lot of the times, but you know, the last two years of my career that my, uh, my Halcyon uh, issue had progressed to the point where I was taking those all day long and I was playing. I was pretty much practicing and playing games in blackouts. You know, I would be home late at night you know, 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night laying on the couch after I'd played an entire NFL football game. And, uh, you know, I would, I would kind of come around and I'd be all beaten up and bruised and scratched and fingernails all torn up and dehydrated, all the things that you are after an NFL football game. And I didn't remember a single play. Wow. And, but that's what it progressed to the last couple of years. And, you know, I talk about that a lot because, you know, talk about guilt and shame. God always, God always seemed to bless me with the ability to be in the right place at the right time around the right people doing the right thing, high school, college, you know, the fact that I made it to the box, a second round pick. And, you know, I kind of, kind of pissed away that opportunity those last couple years of my career playing everything in a blackout I, I don't remember playing in any of those games the last couple of years and that's that's the progression of this thing and you know that's when I started mixing benzos with the opiates you know before games before practices you know and uh, it was that's when life got unmanageable and, and as a matter of fact this is when we kind of knew I knew something was up nobody else did because I was so good at hiding everything. But that last year I'd had some shoulder surgery. So I had to come off the Halcyon and it was the first time that I'd ever come off of it. And uh, I had the shoulder surgery and then the next day I had a seizure and um, they were just like perplexed as to why in the world I would have a seizure. I did all this testing. Think They were thinking I had a seizure disorder or something was wrong with my brain. And I didn't even put two and two together. I didn't realize it was coming off the benzos until the next year. You know, the next year, for whatever reason, I had to come off the Halcyon again. And I did it myself. And sure enough, I had another seizure on the beach in St. Petersburg at the Don Cesar Hotel. And my mom was there. My children were there. We were playing volleyball on the beach. And, um, Again, I was rushed to the hospital. They did all this testing, all this uh, seeing if I had a seizure disorder or epilepsy and all that. And nobody ever put two and two together because really nobody knew the extent of how bad the Halcyon problem was. Wow. So then when does it all come to so Amanda, to answer your to answer your question, <laughs> Amanda, that's when things started getting unmanageable and uh, you know, even though I had pharmacists that were mailing me medication from Houston all the way out to the Bucks, you know, even though I was getting everything I needed out of the drug safe, you know, it still was just a necessary evil at the time to be the best center that I could be. Hmm. Wow. So when your NFL career comes to an end, is that when everything sort of comes to a head? Well, that's when all the other issues, you know, and, and we're going to talk about this later, the adversity I faced. But, you know, when I was with the Bucks, the 10 years that I was there, I had five different head coaches. I had six different position coaches and probably 10 different quarterbacks and four different general managers in that 10 years. We, we were a evolving door of not only coaches but players front office people and you know the one consistent thing about the bucks in in the 80s and early 90s was me at center I seemed to survive every coaching change or quarterback change and uh the last coach that I had Sam Wise um you know it was the day after our our last game 
and back then you would play your last game on a Sunday and then you'd come in on Monday, watch the film of the game, have a, have an exit meeting with your coach. And then, you know, you clean your locker out and pretty much everybody would go their separate ways until the next spring when mini camp started again. That's, that's the way it was back then. Now it's a year round job, but I can remember standing at my locker about to clean it out. It was on a Monday and Sam Weish walking by me and I never even looked around. But I was staring at my locker and I felt a hand on my back and I heard somebody say, Randy, we won't be needing your services anymore. And I just, I, I, my locker was next to the door that exited the locker room and all I saw was a body hit that silver bar in the middle of that doorway, open it up and Coach Weish walking out of it. And I, I, I remember th thinking, wow, this is how it ends. You know, all the, wow. all the blood, sweat, and tears that I've left on football fields all over this country, and this is how it ends with, with a coach that I really don't even like. He doesn't really like me. We really don't have any loyalties to each other. Mm -hmm. I've survived all these other coaches, and this is wow. how it – him putting his, hit, putting his hand on my shoulder, not even the courtesy of – slowing down and looking me in the eye and just as he walks by and I feel that breeze go by me telling me that my career's over and I knew it was uh, over I knew it was over because first of all my age second of all I'd hurt my, my ankle that year and uh, I couldn't get it well and I knew I wasn't going to get it well enough in the offseason to try out with anybody else so I knew that it was over when he did that and it was like and I don't know what I expected I don't know if I expected to have a, a street named after me or a parade or anything <laughs> like that but I just Randy never, I never thought it would yeah right Randy Grimes Turnpike I never <laughs> thought that it would end like that and uh, I can just remember raking everything out of my locker into a black trash bag and walking out the back door and you know, Randy Grimes, the football player, didn't exist anymore, and that's when the real struggle. Because now, now I have all these underlying issues going on on top of a raging addiction, and um, it was just that like was your identity, Randy. That was who you were. That was who I was. That's right. And, and then uh, what do you do? No sense of closure at all either. No. I mean, it's just uh, you just walk out the door, and it's this whole exciting career is just over like that with no no Looks excitement like, bang nothing. more than a career like a dream come true like you you're going from being you know and then just getting kit like walk by see you later like that's like that would be really hard and you know you you always think you're ready for it. you always think you have enough money in the bank you always think mentally you're prepared for the next phase of your life and and you try prepare for it best you can but you never know until it actually happens and and when it happened, uh, I, I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't ready for it mentally. And, you know, over the next few years, the injuries just kept getting worse. The chronic pain just kept getting worse. The tolerance just kept getting higher. I needed more and more pills. I moved back to Houston. I was doctor shopping all over town. It was a full-time job to keep all these doctors going and to keep my addiction going. And, you know, that was life for Randy Grimes in the next 20-plus years, you know. Wow, so and and throw all this other loss of identity and self-esteem and depression and and all the other stuff that goes goes along with Sam Wash putting his hand on my shoulder that day, and uh, I was I was a I was a train wreck. So it kept going for twenty years more after you stopped playing in the NFL. Twenty twenty plus years. Wow! Yeah. Wow! No wow! I had no idea. And, and you know, there were there were times in there where you could say I was functioning. Uh, I always say that I just wasn't getting caught or I wasn't doing anything stupid. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, the the opiates and the benzos were nonstop, and the seizures were nonstop all through that time. And of course, at wow. this time, of course, Lydia, my wife, knew what was going on. She knew what was things were out of control. But probably that last 10 years of that 20 plus years is, you know, the real norm in my life was losing jobs, losing houses, losing cars, seizures, uh, trips uh, to the trips to the hospital in an ambulance, wrecked cars. You know, my kids, 
kids, what I put my kids through was just unbelievable. And, and the healing that's gone on in the last 10 years for them is just incredible. That's, that's a book in itself, what mm. the work that they've put in. But uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty chaotic that 20 plus years, but the last 10 of that 20 plus years is when really all the unmanageability was just at its height. Well, and you just, you kept it going for, I mean, just thinking about the ferocity that you were using while playing for the NFL and then trying to keep that going for 20 more years. It's just, it's, it's insane. So tell us then about what's the turnaround look like? How, what, what saved you? What continues to save you? What, what stopped you? Well, it seems like the perfect storm was happening in the spring of 2009. And uh, that's when my buddy Tom McGill passed away. Uh, I'd had a series of seizures also, you know, at, at, at some really crazy times, you know, I, one of them, uh, I was, uh, getting out of the pool. I was at home alone. I was getting out of the pool and I had a seizure as soon as I hit the top step and had it been a couple steps earlier, I'd still been in the water and passed away. You know, I'd, I'd had some seizures like pulling into my driveway and putting the car in park and I'd have a seizure. And had it been just a second earlier, my car would have still been in gear and I would have gone right through the garage or down the street or something. Uh, I'd had a seizure driving my kids around. I mean, the perfect storm was brewing. And um, also, uh, like I said, Tom passing away. And uh, um, the fact that, Lydia finally, you know, you know, she finally realized and, and, and it took her this long, even though she was trying to get me in treatment centers, trying to get me in detoxes, trying to do everything that she could to help me. She finally just realized she was loving me to death. And, uh, you know, she moved out and uh, she just couldn't live with me anymore. She, she just realized she wasn't doing anything but enabling me and she moved in with her parents and uh, we had sold a house but the new owners weren't going to take the house this was all going on in spring and early summer 2009 and um, so we moved all the furniture out of the house and i didn't have anywhere to go so i slept on the floor of, uh, of an empty house for the next few months so my bottom is starting to starting to really take shape around me and then my daughter who was pregnant with my first grandchild she wouldn't let me come around her or the baby when it was born at all and uh, so it was just kind of the perfect storm everything hitting at one time the seizures the, the foreclosure on the house the uh, Lydia leaving my daughter not wanting to be around me and I, that's when I finally Lydia reached out to the NFL, and at that time, they didn't have a program for former players. It just so happens that whoever she talked to at the league office knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody, and that's how I got to treatment in Florida. And that was September wow. 22nd, 2009. Wow. And, Randy, today you do so much, like I said, I shared at the beginning, you do so much to give back and to be – um, you know, somebody that people can reach out to you or a voice to, to athletes, to retired athletes, like share a little bit with our listeners, like a little bit about like what you do today to give back and like how you use your adversities to, you know, to shine a light on the world like you do on a daily basis. Well, and uh, I remember sitting at a, a picnic table while I was in treatment. I, I, it was exactly two weeks into the process. I was still on a detox protocol because they took it real slow on me. I'd had so many seizures. But I remember sitting at a picnic table. It was 8.45 in the morning. It was on a Wednesday. It was 15 minutes before the first group started. For some reason, I used to get up every morning and just write. I had a spiral notebook, and I would just write down how I was feeling, what I was going through, what was going on around me. And this particular morning, I just couldn't stop sobbing. And I remember, I can't imagine what 280-pound man sitting in the middle of a detox campus sobbing uncontrollably look like but I just couldn't get it together I couldn't get myself I couldn't get a grip on myself and I remember thinking that if this is what being sober feels like I don't have any part of it because for the first time in 20 plus years I had to deal with who I was what I had done and like I said earlier that huge wake of destruction that I left back in Houston and, and, and everything that had happened with my wife and my children and, you know, I just couldn't get it together. And it was like at that very second that all that was going on. 
And this was kind of like my burning bush moment, my real spiritual awakening. It was like somebody came up behind me and draped a warm quilt around my shoulders. And I say that because I remember even to this day feeling weight and warmth on me. And I knew at that second, something happened to me at that very second at that picnic table that morning that not only did I realize that I could do this, but like I said earlier, I had to make it mean something. And uh, I knew that the NFL, even though I was still going through all this, I wanted to do something for the other guys that I knew were out there doing the exact same thing I was doing, and that's self-medicating their injuries they got, they got while they played. And uh, they wouldn't raise their hand for help because they didn't know anything existed. And that's when I started Athletes in Recovery after when I got out of treatment. Um, you know, this was months later. I, 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 you know, it was another six months. Uh, I did everything they asked me to do. I did all the aftercare. I went and moved in a halfway house in Delray. I did everything that they asked me to do. And then I started coming around and doing some volunteer calls for the treatment center that I worked at and reaching out to alumni. And after about a year is when I started working with the NFL, putting the, putting together this program for former players. And, you know, it was just so successful. We helped so many guys that were just like me that uh, Major League Baseball got involved with it, and BAT, the baseball assistance team, and wow. just other professional athletes. And we all had the same issues. We were all out there self-medicating our injuries. And we all had that same trauma of, uh, of uh, a separation trauma, you know, that that, that when, when we couldn't put on the uniform anymore, we didn't know who we were. Hmm. And uh, it's the same with veterans. You know, that's why veterans and athletes do so well together in this program is because they have the same issues. And, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the work that we've been able to do for the, the last 10 years. I'm proud of, the, of uh, the amount of guys that we've been able to help and guys that have gone out and started their own missions and they're out helping guys, you know, it's, uh, it's a beautiful thing to watch. And, uh, you know, it's not just athletes that, that I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about working with anybody who wants help from this disease and families. And, you know, I just, I've always believed that when families get well, addicts get well. And uh, yeah, if, if we can work with families and get them, get them on the right page and get them to do the tough things that this disease requires, then, then we're going to win this, this war. And I, I just don't believe we're going to legislate our way out of it. We're not going to arrest our way out of it, but we can't educate our way out of it. And that's, that's our mission is to, is to plant seeds everywhere that we can. Let me ask you, is the NFL today, I'm sure it's gotten a lot tighter, I'm hoping, but is, is it still pretty similar where, where players still have a huge amount of access to, to pain medications and, and sleep medications? Well, uh, I will say this. I know that in the 10 years that I've been doing this and advocating for tighter, tighter prescriptions and, and, and policies and procedures as far as handing out narcotics, I don't know if you remember, but three or four years ago, they were uh, cracking down on doctors like, like uh, the Tampa Bay doctor could not, you could not go to like Minnesota, play the violin, Vikings and he could not hand out pain medication in another state because he was only licensed in Florida. So stuff like that was starting to happen. There was more, more accountability to the DEA. I know the DEA was coming around and keeping a tighter uh, protocol on what they were distributing at the uh, clubhouses. So we, we were able to do a lot of work. We were able to raise a lot of awareness for that, but you know, as off as, as, as recent as two years ago, I know that I worked with a player that had just come out of the league and he was able to get his hands on as many opiates as he needed. So, you know, it's, it's the same culture. It's, it's, um, you know, as long as you're playing great, you're not causing any problems. You're not harming anybody else. Then we're going to help you continue to do that. That's scary. And you almost can't blame the player. I mean, like I said before, you hit the lottery. So it's like giving up your lottery money to try to get some help or to try to, to stop taking those pain medications and, and, and complain or talk about your issues or, or end up on the injury reserve list. I mean, you're sort of giving up that lottery ticket and giving up that money. It's hard to do. 
Well, and that's why we don't raise our hand up and say we need help. And that's why we suffer in silence. And that's why we ask our teammates for their pills or that's why we go get it out of the drug safe. You know, the drug safe was usually wide open, but if by chance it was ever locked, we had three white guys, Scott Brantley, John uh, Cannon and Mark Cotney, their Jersey numbers were the combination to the drug safe. And everybody knew it. And it was like that the whole decade I was there. So all you had to do was dial in their, uh, their combination and you had access to all the narcotics that, uh, that you wanted. Wow. Crazy, huh? Well, even like with the male, like the, how men are, you know, especially, you know, historically were raised to like be quiet, to not complain, not share their feelings, not say anything. So, you know, with that, those kind of upbringings and then, then puts you into this dream, you know, this dream that you've had your whole life of being an NFL player. And then adding to that, like, no, you can't talk about your suffering. You can't talk about your aches and pains then do you begin, become addicted to these substances and then you really can't say anything. So like, that's why so many people are, are dying, you know, like they're, that's, that's really, really problematic. Like it's like, they're escalating that don't say anything, don't share your feelings, don't share your pain. Well, and I think that's part of our mission is to get out there and share that it's okay to not be okay. And, and uh, you know, it's okay to raise your hand and it's okay. I mean, you, you've got the, the guys that were successful athletes that are out there, they're, they're pounding the pavement and, and trying to make a difference. The Chris Herons and, and the different people that are out there, Vance and, and all the different people. So, you know, hopefully the more awareness we raise and the more events we do and the more, the more um, uh, opportunities we have to get in front of people that would just continue to, to reduce that stigma. Same, same with y'all. I mean, this is not just about athletes. Athletes are just a popular, a part of the population of just normal people that, you know, they, they all have pain. They all have uh, trauma. They all have uh, underlying issues that need to be dealt with that are the reason for the addiction. Yeah, I agree. And I think a lot of different careers and, and jobs can almost make the same argument that they had to take it. They had to keep taking these pain meds or they had to drink to get through it or whatever it may be. They had to do it to get through a shift. And if not, they would lose their job and then where would they be? So whether you're making millions and playing in the NFL or you're a server at a restaurant and you need something to get you through these, those long hours on your feet, I think there's a lot of people making arguments uh, as to why they need it. And it's, it sort of becomes accepted in those, in those different occupations. Well, and I think the adversity that, you know, that I want to talk about is just the transition uh, from, from being an athlete to just, to just normal life. And, you know, that's, we as, we as humans don't do very well with change and transitions hard for all of us, whether, whether we're a college senior that's trying to transition into the working world or a, a broken home, a wife that's transitioning or a husband that's transitioning to, to being single, whether it's a retired guy who's going to retire, you know, leaving his job, the, the, the CEO or the attorney, you know, whether it's the veteran who's leaving his position, you know, it's, it's, those transitional issues are something that's not talked about enough. And uh, even with Olympic athletes, you know, when they're able to not compete anymore, they struggle. They struggle with who they are and the identity they have. And, you know, I always say that it's my fault that I let football become who I was instead of just something I was good at. But, you know, it's so easy to do when that's all you do. And, right. Uh, you know, Who's your identity? Right. And these Olympic athletes and, and, and people who are so wrapped up in their jobs that, you know, they've been there for 30 years, they're CEOs, they're prominent citizens of the community, and all of a sudden they're not anymore. And uh, who are they? What, what is your contribution to life anymore? And, um, you know, I'm grateful that recovery gave me uh, a reason to keep going and you know that's uh, and that's about helping others and, and planting seeds but you know a lot of people it's almost like I wish I wish there was a transitional program out there that just helped people transition and from all those different circumstances that I just named and there's so many more I mean I'm, mm. I'm sure you could just sit there and think about all the different ways people transition and uh, they don't do it very well we just yeah. are not good at it Agreed. 
I, I think it's a double-edged sword too. And we, we got to wrap it up, but it's a double-edged sword because in order to be good and to be the best at something, you almost have to dive completely in. But at the same time, when that thing goes away, then you're lost without it because it becomes your identity. So it is, it's very difficult. And so Randy, I mean, I, I know we bust balls a lot and we go back and forth and it's sort of our relationship, but I, I do think you're still a special guy. And I think that you're doing a lot of amazing things and I'm always proud to know you and, and proud of you. And I'm so grateful for you in my life, Randy. Thank you for all well, that you do. You. And, and, and you met so many cool people at the summit, Amanda, everybody was so with you so congratulations awesome. yeah i got to go to his athlete summit lake oh, and it was nice. amazing all the different organizations that he's talking about with the, the jockeys the major league baseball players i mean it was just really really cool and nfl cares nice. yeah they were all there that is awesome yeah so we end our our show in a very special way um we have a little segment that we like to call let it out so we all overcome these adversities every throughout our lives, and there's these major life events that we have to work through. But every day we face small adversities, and we the more that they add up, the more pent up they get, the more the more we're likely to react poorly. So we believe in letting those out. You know, a problem shared is a problem cut in half. So, uh, what is a little thing that's bothering you today, Randy? What's give us a a little adversity or a little thing that you're struggling with today? Let it burn. Used in traffic. Houston traffic. That's a Tell good one. Tell me about it. What about I'm, Houston traffic? I'm fixing to get in it. <laughs> it's a nightmare. This is the worst time of day, but I'm fixing to be in it. And uh, so that's my adversity in the immediate future. Amanda? Um, let's see. Mine is the heat. Like, hello, Florida. It is the end of October. It's time to cool down. I'm like sweating more than ever this month. So you've only I, lived here your whole life. I know, but come on. It's enough. I, to, I, mean, I am grateful. It was cool. When I went to Disney a few weeks ago, I had like a little bit of that, that cool front that came through, but like, I'm ready for it to cool off. That's my, uh, my let it out. Come on. Cold front. All right. My let it out is that I just, I hate waking up early and I have to be up very early tomorrow to drive to Miami. Talk about traffic. I got to drive to Miami tomorrow morning early. Oh. Nightmare. That is a nightmare. So I, I'm already, uh, my day's already ruined and I'm going to dwell on it for the rest of my day and just sit in a pity pot. And that's what I'm going to do today. And, and I got to, I got to bring up my Astros too. They didn't, the last two nights have not been very good. <laughs> well, I uh, just found out last night that the World Series is going on. So Oh, yeah. wow. You're, you're a real sports nut, huh? I'm a real sports nut, yeah. I, you know, I'm a huge Tampa Bay Bucks fan. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, Randy. Hey, I'm grateful, guys. Thank you all for including me. All thank right. you. And if you want to find Overcoming Adversity podcast, please go on Facebook, like our page. You can download us on Apple and Spotify. You can email us if you want to be a guest or if you want to pick somebody, nominate somebody to be a guest at overcomingadversitypodcast at gmail.com. And I'm putting this out there. Look out for Amanda and I uh, on a TEDx or a TED Talk coming soon. I'm putting this out there for the universe. We love you guys. <laughs> Thank you again. Thanks, Randy. Thank you all very much. All right. We'll Have see everybody day. next week. Bye. Bye-bye. I want to break free.